Hello everyone, today's episode includes some direct quotes that some may find inappropriate for young viewers. Each quote will be introduced as a quote-unquote to protect the listeners and to provide you with the most accurate picture of what is taking place in Wilmington at this time. Thank you for understanding and enjoy the show. American history is full of the good, bad, and everything in between. But in the end, these are our stories. Today's episode will discuss Reconstruction, Populism, and the rise of the black population in Wilmington. So pull up a chair and join your host Jacob for a brand new episode on Wilmington 1898, Cape Fear Runs Red. Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new edition of the History Book I have a great episode planned for you all because not only is it the 30th episode, but this topic just so happens to be my history thesis from college, so it's very near and dear to my heart. With all that being said, let's jump right into the episode. To start, let's talk about Wilmington and Reconstruction Era South. After the war had ended in North Carolina in 1865, it's important to state the effects of the war on North Carolina's population. One in four men who served from the state died of wounds or illness, adding up to around 30,000 to 35,000 men. Civilian deaths are mostly unknown, but it is safe to assume there were some. Millions of dollars were lost both in property damage and in money sent to the failed Confederate government. The abolition of slavery resulted in a $200 million loss as well. North Carolina's economy was utterly destroyed by the war's end, but the psychological impact is where our story lies and that proved more difficult to heal. Like the rest of the South, North Carolina, and specifically Wilmington, was placed under military control under District 2. General U.S. Grant and President Andrew Jackson placed General John B. Schofield in charge. Shortly after President Johnson called for North Carolina to draft the new state constitution and placed William W. Holden as provisional governor. As important to note is that President Johnson issued the Amnesty Proclamation, creating a path of citizenship back for the now former Confederates. After arguments over Confederate war debt left the new state constitution lacking, North Carolina was left with the possibility of not being allowed back into the Union. In this case, they were right, but not for the reasons they thought. Radical Republicans in Congress felt that President Johnson had been far too easy on the South, and they took control of Reconstruction. Across the South, new state constitutions had instituted black codes to regulate the lives of newly freed blacks across the region. In response to this, radical Republicans controlling Congress passed the 14th Amendment to guarantee citizenship to freedmen. North Carolina Governor Jonathan Worth convinced the state legislature to reject the amendment. Congress responded with these rejections by passing the Reconstruction Act of 1867. This once again divided the South into military districts and required new state constitutions guaranteeing voting rights to freemen. General Dan Sickles was placed under control of the 2nd Military District, which once again included North Carolina. Now, Dan Sickles himself deserves his own episode, but he didn't last very long as district commander and was quickly replaced by General Edward R. S. Canopy. After another round of gubernatorial elections, William Holden was once again governor and the 14th Amendment was passed by North Carolina on July 4, 1868, allowing the state to be readmitted into the Union. In the meantime, the South destruction offered opportunity. 
To fill this void, uh, northern copper baggers and loyal union scallywags attempted to bring economic prosperity to North Carolina and the South as a whole. Just as an aside, scallywags is certainly a word we should start using more often today. But to North Carolina's, these men and women were nothing short of a second invasion, bent on reaping the spoils of war out of North Carolina. With both these groups, as well as freedmen gaining economic prosperity, a violent counter-movement emerged, the Ku Klux Klan. The KKK terrorized freemen, carpetbaggers, and scallywags alike into staying away from voting polls and political participation. By April of 1871, the Klan had been stamped out by the federal force bills, but violence toward these groups would continue well into the future. North Carolina actions against the KKK resulted in a brief conflict known as the Kirk-Holden War in 1870. This saw Governor Holden impeached and Lieutenant Governor Todd All Cardwell take his place. By 1877, North Carolina was back in the hands of the Democrats and Zebulon Vance was brought back as governor since he had been governor in North Carolina during the war. Republican organization remained strong in the state, especially in Wilmington, considering it was a majority black. Because of this, Democrats in the city had to make accommodations for Republicans and blacks in the city, opening the door for black economic and political advancement. Right now, we're going to take a brief social media break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Wilmington's black population leading up to the right. Hello everyone, this is Jacob, the host of The History Book, here to remind you that you can find The History Book on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as on our website, www.thehistorybook20.wixsite.com backslash thehistorybook. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back. As I was saying before the break, Wilmington's Republican and black population had maintained its strength even through the Ku Klux Klan and Democratic retake of the state in late 1870s. By the close of the 19th century, Wilmington's black population outnumbered the white population 11,000 to 8,500. Economic prosperity in the black community brought black-owned businesses an especially hard-to-swallow pill for white population of Wilmington political participation. Wilmington's Board of Aldermen's had black members by 1898, and black literacy rates were higher than whites in the city. A new political movement was also threatening the democratic control even more than black prosperity, the populist. Populism had formed out of the farmers' alliance against banks, railroads, and monopolies. Populism became increasingly popular in the western part of the state, and populist leaders understood that in order to win statewide and national elections, they would have to bring in either black Republicans or merge with the Democrats. Now, nationally, they tended to merge with Democrats over time, but in North Carolina, these populists pushed economic issues that brought in the black Republican voters. This merger was commonly referred to as fusionist. The merger terrified Democrats, and these fears came to fruition when Republican fusionists Daniel Russell was elected governor of North Carolina in 1896. Now, enter the four bad men of Wilmington, 1898. He's a bad man! Charles Aycock, future governor of North Carolina, namesake of Aycock Hall, formerly of UNC's campus, an overall bad dude put the full power of the Democratic political machine against Russell and towards taking back Wilmington from what he called, quote, Negro rule, unquote. Along the way, he had help from Bonifold Simmons, 
the Democratic Party chairman, and once again, overall bad dude. The media mouthpiece of the white supremacy movement in Wilmington came from Josephus Daniels, also bad dude, also had a UNC campus building named after him, and editor of the News and Observer newspaper in Raleigh. Finally, the man with no redeemable qualities, save for quite an impressive beard, Alfred Moore Waldell. Waldell was a former Confederate officer and former U.S. representative from North Carolina until he was defeated by one Daniel Russell in 1879. Waldell became the literal mouthpiece of white supremacy in Wilmington and across the state. He was known as the Silver Tongue Orator of the East and the American Robes Pierre. He infamously said in a speech weeks before the violence in Wilmington that, quote, We will never surrender to a ragged rabble of Negroes, even if we have to choke the Cape Fear River with carcasses. End quote. His words became a racist rallying cry across the state, and especially in Wilmington, where not only was an election about to take place, but an African-American newspaper editor had just printed a scandalous editorial that would bring the firing point for the violence. Right now, we're going to take a brief ad break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the editorial, Red Shirts, and these elections. Thanks for staying tuned through that brief ad break. Rebecca Felton, wife of Congressman William Harold Felton of Georgia, and eventually the first woman to serve as a senator from Georgia, gave a speech that was reprinted in 1898 that called for increased lynching against black men who lusted after white women. In her speech, she said, quote, When there's not enough religion in the pulpit to organize a crusade against sin, nor justice in the courthouse to promptly punish crime, nor manhood enough in the nation to put sheltering arm about innocence and virtue if it needs lynching to protect women's dearest possession from the ravening human beast, then I say lynch a thousand times a week if necessary, end quote. She also blamed white Republicans, saying, quote, you are his teacher. You must correct his teachings or you cannot escape the wrath of an outraged people, end quote. In response to this speech, Alex Manley, a mixed-race descendant of North Carolina Governor Charles Manley and a slave, and the editor of the Daily Record, the only black-owned newspaper in North Carolina at the time, printed an editorial on August 18, 1898. In his response, Manley said, quote, White women of poorer classes are not any more particular in the matter of clandestine meetings with colored men than are the white men with colored women, end quote. Adding to this, he also said, quote, We suggest the whites guard their women more closely, as Miss Felton says, thus giving no opportunity for the human fiend, be he white or black. You leave your goods out on the doors and then complain because they're taken away. End quote. He also called on the white population to teach purity in their women and turned the situation on his head by stating it's no different for a black man to be with a white woman than a white man to be with a black woman. Manny's life and printing press were quickly threatened, and armed black men surrounded his daily record offices until police arrived to prevent any violence. This was not the sole cause of the violence, but it certainly added to tensions. Tensions that would further stress the Red Shirt organization coming to town on November 3, 1898. The Red Shirts were created by Senator Benjamin Tillman. This white supremacy group was the violent offspring of the destruction of the KKK 
and had larger organizations in both Mississippi and across North Carolina. The North Carolina faction marched into Wilmington on November 3, 1898, and would continue to demonstrate, preventing voting on November 8th and eventually becoming pickets for the white mob on November 10, 1898. Groups now known as white government unions also sprouted up across the city to push for white Democrat candidates and prevent black voter participation. Now this vote was to take place on November 8, 1898, and as tensions were high, voter turnout dropped, especially in the black community. Red shirts and white government unions prevented black voters, and the Democratic gains were tremendous across the state. These groups were instructed to allow voter corruption. As Governor Russell returned to Wilmington to vote in the election, his train was boarded twice by red shirts threatening to lynch him, and he had to be hid by future Governor Cameron Morris. By nightfall, the Democrats had won the election by almost 6,000 votes, and a small amount of relief came across the city. This relief would quickly be dashed by a secret organization determined to rid Wilmington of both Alex Manley and the fusionist Black Government Coalition. The Secret Nine, whose members included Hugh McRae, William A. Johnson, Walter L. Parsley, J. Allen Taylor, L. B. Sasser, Pierre B. Manning, Hardy L. Fennell, William Gilchrist, and Edward S. Lathrop issued a call for the white men of the community to meet the next day to address the still lingering issues. Right now, we're going to take a brief musical break, and when we come back, we will wrap up the episode and talk about what's coming next. Now, what you might be wondering is why I left you on a cliffhanger. The reason is, our next episode will also be on Wilmington 1898, and it will cover the violence of November 10th, 1898, and the aftermath. That episode will be available November 17th, and it will be titled, Wilmington 1898, Blood in the Streets. Until then, this has been Jacob with the History Book, and I'll see you next time.